of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't know about you, but I look forward to our times together. I was thinking about that last night. I look forward to being with you all. So I hope that you feel the same this morning as we are able to gather around God's word and see what he would have to say to us this morning. And we've reached the culminating doctrine of the Reformation. We've been going through the five solas, sola scriptura, scripture alone, Sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solas Christus, Christ alone. And now we come to the apex, the pinnacle, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And as we've made our way through these doctrines, you may have wondered, what's the big deal? Why are these doctrines so important? Were they really lost? Did they really need to be recovered? Why were the solas so controversial? And maybe even for us this morning, why are the solas so controversial? After all, we've talked about Scripture, grace, faith, Christ, all of those things. Many other people talk about? Are we really saying anything different? The controversy, however, comes with that little word alone, sola. When we attach that to these doctrines, it's when they become controversial, controversial, that people begin to object, that people begin to attack the solas. And as they begin to attack those other four solas, Scripture and grace and faith and Christ, it's that they also then begin to attack this fifth and final sola. It's only when all of those other doctrines are in place that this last sola, soli deo gloria, shines the brightest. This is the doctrine that holds all of the other solas together. And we have to remember that we cannot and must not make the five solas centered around us and serve our selfishness. I'm afraid this morning that we might not think that that's a revolutionary idea. That it is not ultimately about us. The world would say differently. The world would tell us that it is all about us. And too often the church might say it's all about us. I would fail you as a preacher of the gospel if I made it all about you. I would fail miserably. I am afraid, however, that too many people who call themselves Christians 
would not think that I have failed if I made it all about you. We must ask ourselves honestly this morning, what is the purpose that we've been learning about in the five solas? The very purpose is the glory of God. In fact, this is the very reason why we have been created. The Westminster Catechism asks the very first question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It gets down to the very essence of who we are. It gets down to the very essence of why God has made us. This is at the very heart of what it means to live life the way that we were designed to live our lives. If you miss the purpose, the goal, the end of all things, then everything else will be out of alignment. Then nothing will work the way that you think it should work. Then you ultimately will not be living the life that you were meant to live. The train will go nowhere if it's off the tracks. The train is only able to express its full freedom when it's on the tracks. And so it is with our purpose of glorifying God. We fail to understand soli deo gloria if we miss God's glory. And we fail to see why we even exist. Let's stand together this morning as we read from God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, Pew Bible 965 is the page number there for you. But I'm going to begin reading in verse 7 this morning. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, give us ears to hear what your Spirit will say to this church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want us to begin this morning by thinking about a question, a question that I pose to you this morning. The God that you have come here to worship this morning, is He a big God? Is the God that you've come here to worship this morning a big God? Can this God do amazing things? Is this a God who is in control of all things? Is this a God who can do things that you can't even imagine that he could do? Is he so big and perfect and holy and glorious that it would make you think twice about how you would approach him this morning? Would it make you think twice about coming into his presence this morning if he is a big God. There is something so incredible about this infinite and almighty God that it would rightly put us in our proper place. Have you come here this morning to worship a big God or have you come to worship a small God? God that you can approach in a nonchalant, flippant, irreverent manner? You think God is maybe more like yourself, that somehow you can know God on your own, that somehow you can climb up the ladder to sneak a peek at the majesty of God. In your own reason, in your own knowledge, through your own effort and strength. Maybe that's what you want this morning. You want me to tell you how you can gaze upon the glory of God by your own merit and by your own worth. But that's just self-worship. That's not worshiping God. This is what Luther warned about in the Reformation. He warned about a theology of glory. Now, our initial response to that when we hear that, theology of glory... We might think it's an oxymoron. Wait, wait a second. Soli Deo Gloria, aren't we talking about glory? Why would Luther warn us about being theologians of glory? Well, remember, the theologian of glory, what he or she does is they make God like themselves. It's when people try to come to God by their own resources. Luther describes it. This way, the, uh, the theologian of glory, quote, he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. It's when people come to God in this way that instead of getting closer to God, instead of seeing God accurately, 
the Almighty God actually veils himself so that he cannot be seen. But the problem is, the theologian of glory thinks that he sees God. He thinks that he knows God. thinks that, that he has an accurate picture of who God is. But they are only self-deceived. So, if we cannot be theologians of glory, what are we to be? We are to be what Luther called theologians of the cross. Luther says this one is one who, quote, comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through the suffering and the cross. He has been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil until he knows that he is worthless and that his works are not his, but God's. The theologian of glory believes that he possesses everything he needs in order to find the glory of God. But a theologian of the cross realizes that this is a glory that is only ever revealed to him because it is a glory that comes to him in a way that he never would have dreamed. That God's glory would come to us from the cross. Which one this morning? Which one are you? Theologian of glory or a theologian of the cross? And which one truly begins to grasp the magnitude and the depths of God's glory? If we fail to grasp the magnitude of God's glory, we undermine the glory that God alone deserves. And so it's with this in mind that we must be careful not to make solely Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory all about us. Because I fear that that can sometimes be our struggle. Okay, just, just tell me what I, need to, what I need to do to give God the glory. Just tell me what that looks like in my life. Just give me the five steps or the six steps or whatever it is so that I can glorify God. No, first we must know that God is glorious before we're able to give Him all the glory alone. And this is what our passage in Scripture this morning leads us through. It leads us through this progression of showing us that God is glorious so that then we can give God glory and give God glory. Glory alone. So how does this scripture help us give glory to God alone? Number one this morning. We give God glory alone because we partake of a greater glory. Number one, we give God glory alone because we partake in a greater glory. I'm often skeptical when someone tells me that they have something better for me. You know, when they try to sell you something, they're trying to convince you that this thing is is better. I'm I'm always a little skeptical in my mind, okay? Uh, What's the catch? What is it that I'm missing? If, if, 
If this is so much better, if this thing that you want me to have is going to revolutionize my life and going to change me and I'm never going to be the same again, what is it? And what's it going to cost me? You want to read the fine print. Make sure that there's nothing that you've missed. Paul, in these verses this morning, he leads us from this argument from lesser to the greater and tells us something is better. And what's amazing is that as we read this, it, it strips away all of the skepticism that's, that could be there. Really, this is better? Why? Paul strips that systematically all away and tells us that there is a better glory, a greater glory that is ours. And so let's take a look this, uh, this morning for a moment at this, this argument that Paul puts before us as he argues from the lesser to the greater. He gives us a contrast, a contrast between a relationship between God and the Israelites, the Jews, and the relationship between God and the people of what we call the New Covenant. So the Israelites were the people of the Old Covenant, of the law, the law of Moses, but now Christians are in this New Covenant, a relationship that's... that's made with God based upon the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see here that Paul begins to describe what this old covenant looks like. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, that should be a hint to us this morning what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about Moses and Mount Sinai. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai and God delivered the Ten Commandments to him. Where were those Ten Commandments written? They were written on stone. They were carved into stone. And when God wrote those Ten Commandments on those two stone tablets, it signified that he was doing something, that he was doing something, that he was giving them an external law that they were supposed to follow. was something that was on the outside. And it's something that's contrasted to what the Spirit does in us because Paul says here a few verses earlier in verse 3 that, that now we've been delivered and now the Spirit of the living God has written not on tablets of stone, but uh, what? On tablets of heart. There's something now that's happened on the inside. There's a contrast here between the old covenant and external law, and now something that happens within Christians in the new covenant where it's happening actually within our hearts and lives. And what's amazing is that Paul says, with this old covenant, when God wrote the letters on the stone, this external law that came to them, it came to them with amazing glory. Let's think this morning about the glory that this old covenant came with. The glory of God that came to rest upon Mount Sinai. The glory of God that came down where there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And it says that the mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the glory of God was so great that the people were trembling and afraid by the glory that descended upon the mountain. 
And it's on the mountain where then Moses received the Ten Commandments from the Lord. It's on the mountain then where Moses is able to catch a small glimpse of God's glory. It's on this mountain where Moses actually talks with God. Being in the very presence of God and surrounded by God's glory actually changes Moses' appearance, changes the likeness of his face. It says that the skin of Moses' face shone and the people were afraid to come near him. This glory that Moses experienced on the mountain was so great that when that glory reflected off of his face, when he saw other people, they became afraid. It's in this event that God made a covenant, a relationship with his people, the old covenant, the law. And listen to how Paul describes this law. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death, or verse 9, he calls it the ministry of condemnation. Or he says that the glory that accompanied the coming of this covenant was being brought to an end. It is with the law that brought people a knowledge of their sin and gave them no power to obey God's righteous demands. The law only showed people that the wages of sin is death. It only made them aware that they stood condemned before a holy God because they could not perfectly keep the law. The law did nothing to change them. The law only came to them with this pronouncement, guilty. Yet even this covenant came with great glory. Such great glory that people were afraid and trembled. And Paul's point is this. If the old covenant, if the law, came with such a great and awesome and terrifying and amazing glory, and if that glory came and it could do nothing to change people's hearts, imagine what kind of glory accompanies a new covenant that does change people's hearts. If you thought the glory that was on Mount Sinai was great, you haven't seen anything yet. Why? Because this covenant, the new covenant, comes with the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God himself indwelling his people. Why is this glory better? Because now God's presence is in us and with us. We don't have to go up to the mountain like Moses. We don't have to go to the tabernacle like the Israelites in the wilderness. We do not have to go to the temple like Solomon built. The glory is greater because it is the ministry of the Spirit in you. Do you see that there in verse 8? The ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Yes, it will. Because it changes you. It makes it possible for you to be transformed. If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, then you know this greater glory. This ministry is so great and so glorious that it's not like the ministry of death, not like the ministry of the Spirit, no. Or not like the ministry of condemnation, no. The ministry of the Spirit is life, eternal life, everlasting life. Look how else it's described. This new covenant, the end of verse 9, it's also called the ministry of righteousness. This goes back to our standing before God. The new covenant, we're given Christ's righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes to us 
from God. And being declared righteous means that we stand forgiven of our sin. It means that we're declared completely innocent of violating God's glory. This is in direct contrast to the ministry of condemnation where one only stands before God as guilty, deserving of death, the just wages for their sin. This is a greater glory because there is a final and great sacrifice made which is able to justify us, to make us righteous in God's eyes. The ministry of righteousness far exceeds the glory of the ministry of condemnation. And the only way that we find this is through the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of glory. Paul also says this new covenant glory is finally greater because it is never going away. It's a permanent glory. The glory that that shone on Moses' face was a temporary glory. It was a glory that was going to fade It was a glory that was not going to last. In fact, some even suggest that the reason why Moses continued to put a veil upon his face was that so that people could not see that the glory was fading away. The point is this. The glory that accompanied the old covenant was a glory that would not last. And it would not last because it was being eclipsed by a greater glory, a glory that was permanent, that was lasting, that was satisfying, a glory that will never diminish, a glory that will never fade away, a glory that will never get old, a glory that will always accomplish and bring about what it intends to do. The great glory of the new covenant is greater because it's an everlasting covenant. It's now a relationship built upon the glory of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the glory, the greater glory, the glory that we as Christians are privileged to partake of and participate in. Do you see this greater glory? Do you see it as a greater glory than what was on Mount Sinai? Do you see it as a greater glory than what was in the Old Testament temple? Do you see the greatness of this glory in the face of Jesus Christ himself? And do you see that the utter greatness of this glory comes to us through God the Son and through the Holy Spirit into our individual lives? These can no longer be ho-hum, lethargic Christian lives. These are lives that are wrapped in the very glory of God himself. And we are a demonstration to the world that God is glorious. Number two. We give glory... We give God glory alone because we have access into His glory. We give God glory alone because we have access into His glory. It's an odd thing for us to imagine, something that we're often not accustomed to, is when someone puts a veil over their face. I mean, you think about that. In our culture, when is the only time that we might experience that? At a wedding. The bride puts a veil over her face, and then the veil is taken away. But in other cultures, veils over people's faces was quite common. And here, in our passage of Scripture, particularly verses uh, 
12 through 18, this idea of a veil becomes particularly important. A veil over someone's face. Why would they put a veil over someone's face? Or why would you put a veil over your face? A veil is meant to hide something. It's meant to be in place so that you cannot see something clearly or accurately or, in some cases, you cannot see anything at all. Paul here in verse 12 says that he sees his ministry far different than the ministry of Moses. Paul's ministry was different in the fact that it was not veiled. It is not hiding the glory of God. In fact, this is why Paul has hope and boldness. Do you see that there? Since we have a hope, we are very bold. Moses' ministry of the law was one where he had to veil his face. He had to hide his face so that they would not see the reflection of God's glory that made his face shine. But now that veil is removed. Moses put that veil over his face so that the Israelites would not gaze. That's an important word. They would not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. It kept them from seeing that the glory that was on Moses' face did not last. In fact, the glory of the Old Covenant was designed to be brought to an end. But look at what it says here, verse 14. But their minds were hardened. The Jews, however, were a stick-nephed people entrenched in their sinful ways. And Paul says to the readers in his day that they could still see that phenomena. That when the Jews read the, read the Bible, read the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, their minds were hardened. And how did the Jews show that their minds were hardened? They could not see the glory of God. And they showed it in how they read the Old Testament. Paul shifts his analogy here for a moment. We have seen the analogy that the veil is on Moses' face, which hid the fading glory from the Israelites. But now that analogy is is shifted so that the veil is actually over the Israelites. And you see that the veil is over their hearts. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts hearts. They do not see the greater glory that the law points to. They do not see that the law was never meant to transform them. The law was never meant to do what only God to do, what only God could do in giving them a new heart. And so what is it that that the, those Jews needed? They needed the veil that was upon their hearts to be lifted. They needed to see the glory of God clearly. They needed to gain access to the glory of God. How will this veil be lifted from their eyes so they can see it? What does it say here? The end of verse 14. Because only through Christ is it taken away. It's because they didn't read the Old Testament with Christ in view that their faces were veiled. It should teach us something this morning about the way that we read our Bibles and about the way that we read the Old Testament. We must read it with Jesus Christ in view. We must see that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Him. We must agree with Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20 when he says, 
For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's in Christ. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We must see that if the whole Old Testament is pointing towards Christ, that it can be damaging if we fail to read the Old Testament in light of Christ. Because hope is lost, access to glory is lost, and God himself is lost. The only way that we can gain an understanding of the true purpose of the law is to see that the law was never an end in and of itself but that it would only point to the one who was to fulfill the law and to bring the law to an end, and that happened in Jesus Christ. It says here that the Jews' hearts were veiled. And when their hearts were veiled, it meant that their hearts were not changed. And that that veil that was upon their hearts kept them from seeing the final display of God's glory, which comes in Jesus Christ. Where do you see God's glory shine the brightest? You see it in Jesus Christ. We have access to the very glory of God because we have access to Jesus Christ, who is the very glory of God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And look what it says here, only through Christ is the veil taken away. Only through Christ is their blindness brought to an end. Paul says that when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. It's only when one places their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, when they turn from their sin to embrace the Savior, that they really see the lasting glory of God and have access into this glory. I want us to take a look here at verse 16 for a moment. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's actually a a partial quote from the Old Testament, from Exodus 34, 34. It says this, Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded. My dear Christian, think about this for for a moment this morning. Why did Moses remove the veil? He would remove the veil because he was in the very presence of God himself. Now look at verse 16 here for us. But the one who turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Why is the veil removed? Because now you're in the very presence of God himself. We now who have believed, who have turned to the Lord, have access to the very presence of God and of his glory. He receives all glory because he has made this way to himself through his Son. So we have access to his very presence, to his great glory. This is the confidence, this is the boldness, this is the hope that we have in the gospel. That God will use it to point people to Christ, to open their eyes to him as the Savior that he is the only way to God, and to lift their 
the veil that lies over their hearts so that they can see God and His glory for the very first time. Is this the source of your hope and confidence? Or is your hope and boldness more dependent upon you? If I have an airtight argument, if I could just say all of the right things, then someone's going to come to know Jesus Christ. Our confidence is not in what we're able to do to bring people to the Lord. It's how God is able to change hearts. How God is able to bring people to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and into his glory. Number three this morning. We give God glory alone because we are transformed by his glory. We give God glory alone because we are transformed by his glory. In our first two points this morning, we've seen God's glory put on display for us. We've seen that he is glorious. We've seen that he has made his great glory known how He brought a lasting, permanent glory, how we have access into such a wonderful glory. But now, sola deo gloria, to God alone be the glory, becomes much more personal. As Christians, we are those who have turned to the Lord. We are those who have experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Paul here now in verse 17, ties the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, very closely with the work of the Spirit. Look at what it says. Now the Lord is the Spirit. The Spirit is active and ministering so that it can bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. The Spirit will never bypass Jesus Christ. This is a problem for many people today because many people would like to bypass Jesus Christ and go straight to the Spirit. But what does the Spirit do? The Spirit brings glory to Jesus Christ. The Spirit points us to Jesus Christ. The Spirit is the one who is bringing us back before Jesus Christ again and again and again. And it's with this Holy Spirit, as it's called the Spirit of Christ, which brings about freedom in our lives. The law only enslaved people to, to their sin. It can never bring about an end to their sin. It can never free them from their bondage of sin. But the Holy Spirit now grants believers the power and the freedom to do God's will. That's why he says this. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We have the freedom now to obey God, to do God's will. In our unbelief, we could never obey God. But now with the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us, we are given the power of freedom to do what God wants and to live how He wants us to live. And he goes on then to describe the Christian condition. This wonderful condition that we are in. Look at what he says, verse 18. And we all, 
All Christians, whoever, who has ever turned to the Lord, whoever has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are those with unveiled faces. There is nothing that is preventing us from seeing. We are not blind in any way. There is nothing hidden from our eyes. Our faces are completely unveiled. And since they are unveiled, we are able to behold the glory of God. Christian, this is not something that you have to wait for. This is something that's happened in your life and that we get to do now. Behold the glory of the Lord. How often do we sell ourselves short? We are those who get to gaze upon the Lord's glory, its beauty, and its greatness. This beholding that Paul talks about could also be this contemplating. It happens in our hearts and in our minds. It's this dwelling and thinking upon the glory of the Lord. We meditate on it. And let me ask you this this morning. When you behold the glory of the Lord, and when you contemplate the glory of the Lord, and when you gaze upon the glory of the Lord, what happens? What happens when you behold the glory of the Lord? What does it say here? You're transformed. You're changed. You cannot stay the same because of what you have seen and you are transformed and you are changed for the better, not for the worse. When you behold God's glory, something happens in your heart and in your life and in your mind that makes you more like Jesus Christ, that transforms you, as it says here, from one degree of glory to another. You're transformed into the same image. I take that to mean the same image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It says this in Romans 8, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. We are those who are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. And this transformation does not happen overnight. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a process. It's a, it's a progress that's going on in our lives as we continue to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed. And let me tell you, I'm thankful that it doesn't happen all at once because I would be dead. And so would you if it happened all at once. But that's what's happening in you, believer, Christian. And take courage today. Take hope today. Because there are times that we come in life and we feel, I don't know if I'm being transformed. I don't know if I'm being changed. I don't know if this is happening in my life. God, help me see your glory and believe that as I behold your glory, day by day, moment by moment, minute by minute, you will fulfill your purpose in me to change me and put your glory in me. I like what one translation says, that we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. This ever-increasing glory that is happening within us, the glory in us, is increasing. And that is a complete and utter reversal of the glory that came to an end with the law. Remember that? The glory that came with the law that ended? 
that was brought to an end? Not so with this glory. In fact, this glory is increasing and increasing and becoming greater and greater and growing and growing so that it never comes to an end and never will come to an end. And this comes to us, this comes to you, Christian, through the Holy Spirit. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is how Jesus works through you by His Holy Spirit. That this ever-increasing glory that the Spirit is producing in you, you are being transformed by His power and by His guidance and by His strength. This is not a transformation that you have initiated. It's not a transformation that, will, that you will bring to an end. It is the work of the Spirit within you who sees this transformation process from beginning to end. And so let's marvel this morning for a moment. That this great truth of beholding the glory of the Lord, which produces glory in us, enables us then in turn to give God alone the glory, to glorify Him with our lives. That we then are able to give Him all of the glory. God is able to receive glory from us by enabling us to glorify Him. And even more amazingly, God is glorified through glorifying us. You think about that this morning. God is glorified through glorifying us. That He's going to bring this work to completion, to an end, as we're being uh, transform from one degree of glory to another? That there will be a day when we will be glorified completely? Romans 8.30 And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, what did He do? The very end. He also glorified. We can hold those two truths at the very same time, the truth that all glory belongs to God alone and that we as God's people now are able to share in that glory and reflect that glory to God and reflect that glory to the world around us. We see God's glory shine through scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if God's glory alone is supremely displayed in our salvation. Why should it not also be displayed in our day-to-day -day living? It shouldn't stop. It must not stop. Not only does God get all the glory in saving us, He is to receive all the glory now in who we are and how we live and what we do. If you're not living for God's glory, then you're living subpar life. It will never be fulfilling. You will never be satisfied. You will never be at rest because you will not be living for the very reason why you were created by God in the first place. And living for God's glory alone only ever is accomplished in Jesus Christ. And at the heart of the Christian life is glorifying God. We never move away from it. We never move beyond it. We never grow out of it. And as a church, we must be committed to sole deo gloria, 
may it always flow out of our hearts as we grasp the magnitude of God's glory and say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all glory this morning because you are supremely worthy of all of our glory. And we're thankful for the greater glory that flows to us from the cross of Jesus Christ through his suffering and through his death and resurrection. A glory that shines sometimes the brightest, most times the brightest, in weakness. A glory that is not diminished by suffering or hardship or persecution. In fact, in the world, everything that they would try to do, to try to somehow diminish this glory only makes it shine that much brighter. And so, Lord, may it shine from our lives that people who are following in the footsteps of our Savior, people who at times will experience suffering and hardship and trials and weakness, Sometimes we are, we'll be told that the way of the cross and the way of Jesus Christ and what we believe is foolish and folly and that it's nothing to be listened to, that it's false, that it's then we remember that your glory will shine. And Lord, we pray that your glory would cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. That it would go forth. It would go forth here. It would emanate out of this church, these people, us. That it would go forth into our community. That it would go forth into our state, that it would go forth into the very corners of our world. And that you would lift the veil off of people's hearts so that they could behold the beauty of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior. Amen.